Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is Dan Blewett, and today we're going to talk about Tommy John surgery. So I do try to keep these podcasts uh, not overly specific because I want them to reach a little bit more of a broad audience, but um, with my elbow being such a major theme in my career and with the vast amount of questions I get through my website, through my Instagram, um, through Facebook sometimes, um, I felt it necessary that kind of talk out some of the common questions that I get. Um, Because like I said, I do get a lot of them. And a lot of them, honestly, are are pretty similar. So my background, I had a partial UCL tear as a sophomore in high school. I had a second partial tear as a in my third year in college. And then I had a full tear requiring Tommy John my fourth year in college, sat out my fifth year in college. And then I had another full tear, got Tommy John a second time four years later in 2012. So the timeline of my elbow issues, um, I guess it would have been like 2002, first elbow uh, partial tear, 2006, um, no, 2007, uh, second partial tear, 2008, first uh, Tommy John surgery, 2012, second Tommy John. So unfortunately, um, I've had a pretty tumultuous relationship with my elbow. However, I have bounced back. Um, I'm I'm pretty good at recovering from the surgery. And I I did make all-star teams in pro baseball after each of my surgeries. So I'm something I'm I'm proud of. I can hang my hat on that um, as, as many guys don't come back, especially from their second one, you know, the, the recovery rate really drops off heavily getting a second surgery. Um, I actually definitely bucked that trend and I was as good as after my, after surgery number two, as I ever was in my career, especially at my advanced age. So without further ado, we'll kind of go over some questions and I'm going to give you some kind of bonus stuff that I didn't really release and don't really talk to the public about. Um, there's a couple of things that I'm still not going to mention about my, uh, about my recovery, but there's a couple of things that I'm going to going to elaborate on at the very end. So number one, I get tons of questions from kids who are just like, Hey, my elbow hurt. Do I need Tom John? I'm like, uh, a, I'm not your doctor. Um, B I'm not your physical therapist. C don't you think you should go see one of those people? Um, so, you know, big thing, a big issue that I have with the pitching community right now is everyone thinks that they can seem to diagnose injuries and give, you know, PT and all this advice that's beyond our scope of practice. It's beyond a pitching coach's scope of practice, beyond a pitcher's scope of practice for sure. It's beyond a strength coach. But the lines between strength coach and pitching coach are very blurry these days where they think we can all do both. I understand that at Warbird Academy, we, we trickle down tons and tons of physical, physical therapy, you know, quote unquote, prehab exercises into our training programs. And you know, they're doing all of the PT stuff that I've learned over the years that we learned from different conferences. Lucas and I were at, hey, Lucas, my business partner, Lucas and I were at the ASMI Injuries in Baseball Conference last year, the ASMI. So we got to speak with Dr. Andrews, Dr. Elitrocht, you know, Mike Reinold, all the big names um, in the baseball world. We learned a ton. All those things trickle down to our programs. However, we still do not diagnose kids' injuries. So when kids may ask me those questions, my, my number one advice is always go see a doctor. You know, I, 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 can definitely relate to the idea that you don't want to go somewhere where you might get bad news. Because if you don't go to the doctor, the doctor's not going to give you bad news, right? But you have to do that when you have small problems. And I've had the gamut of tendonitis. My second surgery, I got a cortisone shot for opening day. So I could pitch on opening day. And four weeks later, I had a blown out elbow. So when you cover up problems, you know, you're you're letting your body, you know, especially with, with drugs or with just not going to the doctor, you know, you could be masking something that's just getting worse and getting worse until you have a full-blown injury rather than something small if you had taken time off in the first place. So number one, if you feel compelled to ask me about 
the pain that you have in your elbow and what I think about it, prepare to get an answer from me that says, go see your doctor because he's the only person appropriate to tell you what's going on with your arm. Question number two, uh, and these aren't in any real particular order. At what point did I reach my full velocity? Surgery number one, eight and a half months. Surgery number two, uh, around like 11 months, something like that. Now in surgery number two, we took it a lot slower. So with Dr. Kremchak and I, we felt it best that since I was a revision guy, and if you do want to watch a Tommy John surgery, my revision surgery, the DVD was given to me by Dr. Dr. Kremchak, and I asked him if I could post on YouTube, so I did. So if you do feel compelled to see what a Tommy John surgery looks like, you can watch my elbow get thrown around on the operating table like a rag doll. It's actually pretty fascinating, a little hard to watch. It's very rough. It, you, know, you kind of think about surgery being like a real delicate, like, oh, don't mess anything up. Uh, but no, <laughs> they get after it. But anyway, so uh, surgery two, we delayed my recovery a couple months. He said, look, you know, you're in the off season anyway, because I got surgery in August both times. He said, we need to push you back for you to have a, a fighting chance of, of really recovering well. So he said, rather than start the typical, the start of month four with your throwing program, we're going to go maybe the month five or month five and a half. And that's what we did. So I think my velocity came back in most, mostly the same time. However, the timeline was different on surgery number two. And on a side note, at the ASMI injuries in baseball clinic that we went to last year, we listened to Stan Conti, who was the, the Dodgers uh, head athletic trainer for a number of years. He gave some really good talks about Tommy John. He said, look, everything in life, like, why do you think, you know, it, it was commonly held for a long time that 12 months is like the time when you're going to get back on the mound. He said, doesn't that seem a little convenient? You know, 12 months, exactly one calendar year. He's like, why would your body operate like that? Why would it be a nice round, exactly one year, even number? He said, look, the median is more like 14 or 15 months. Some guys don't come back till 22 months. Some guys do come back and they're ready to go at like 11 and a half. But he said the median with all the statistics that we've gathered is more around around 14 or 15 months. So when we're pushing guys to get back at that year mark, which we pretty much arbitrarily made anyway, he said we're probably contributing to more of these revision surgeries because revision surgeries are unfortunately on the increase. The guy you're listening to right now, I am one of, I think, still less than 100 guys maybe in the world who've had a, a Tommy John revision. And part of that's because you have to play deep enough. You know, I played till I was 30. You have to play deep enough to even give yourself a chance to blow it out, which sounds weird. But um, obviously, if you get surgery your freshman year in college, and then your college career ends without getting drafted or moving on to independent baseball or whatever, then you only had four years to to, to get it again. You know, so obviously longevity in your career plays a factor. You know, a teammate of mine last year, Todd Coffey, who is featured in the, the Jeff Possum book, and I don't know if I pronounce his uh, last name right, but The Arm, which is a very popular book, very much worth the read, by the way. Um, I read that last summer while Todd was my teammate. Todd was like, I think he's the longest recorded between surgeries. So he got his first Tommy John around 19 or 20 when he was first drafted. And then he didn't get his second one until his 30s, which is crazy. So he made a long time. Usually when it's going to happen again, it happens pretty quick within like three or four years. And more often than not, you're seeing guys just fail their surgery. So they get to 10 or 11 months and they blow it out again and they have to redo it. That wasn't my case. I made it four years, but everyone's different, obviously. Oh, and caveat to that. So when I reached my full vo- my full velocity, I was nowhere close to pitching in a game. So obviously, it's exciting when I saw 90 come back on the gun the first time. I still, A, my arm would feel like crap after I'd, I'd throw like that. I had no feel for any off-speed stuff. I had you know no feel for change-up breaking ball. I had very little control. So you know it's kind of like, 
I don't know, getting the engine of a car you're rebuilding ready. Like the engine's fine tuned and ready to go, but the car doesn't have tires on it, doesn't have axles in it, doesn't have, you know, the transmission's not hooked up, like everything else in that garage, you know, auto project still needs to be assembled. So yeah, maybe the engine's there, but all the other stuff is still equally important. Question two here on my list, uh, what was the hardest part about the recovery process? For me, it's balancing the bullpen phase with strength training. So everything to me, like, you know, I had little aches and pains throughout, but at the same time, I was never super worried about those aches and pains as I was playing catch in the catch phase, which is the first six months. Once I got onto the mound where I'm starting to throw harder and put clearly putting more stress through my arm. And at that point, you're starting to, well, you're not starting to, you're, you're pretty much in the thick of strength training once again. So you're able to do, you know, rows with, with a reasonable amount of weight and push-ups and all those things. So you can put stress on your arm, a increasing stress from the bullpen, increasing stress from your strength training workouts. And then as you start to throw chain-ups and curveballs a little bit longer, uh, a little farther on along, it gets even more difficult because they start stressing your arm in new ways. So suddenly you need to take more time off between your throwing sessions because the bullpen's causing your arm to react. And then you're like, okay, well, what do I do in the gym? And then your arm still is bothering you. So you're like, do you do push-ups? Do you do your, your dumbbell bench press? Do you do your rows? Uh, balancing all that stuff, trying to figure out how my arm feels and what I'm capable of doing in the gym between, you know, these mound phase, uh, bullpens was really, really hard. And, um, as, as kids reach out to me for workouts and all this stuff, they're like, Hey, I'm recovering. Can you give me some advice? It's something that you need an experienced strength coach with you to help you through that. I, I went through that mostly by myself both times. And, you know, I, I made sense of it the first time it was really difficult. The second time it was a lot easier. And to be honest, the second time I just said, screw it. Like, what do I need to do upper body for? I just killed it with squats. I had a yoke bar, I front squat. I do all these other things. When I did front squats, obviously, I did not use the Olympic grip, the clean grip. I used the cross arm grip, more often used by bodybuilders. But I just said, screw it. I'm not going to deal with all that. I was mostly strong enough. I think squats and a lot of the leg stuff I did had carry over to my upper body strength. My rehab was my arm care. So I just did tons of shoulder stuff and the forearm stuff. I varied that a lot, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I just kind of headed that thing off the second time where I did not put an emphasis on strength training the second surgery like I did the first time. So that was a very difficult phase, but I mean, as far as career ramifications, relearning how to throw my off-speed stuff was the hardest thing. Both times, my first year back, so 2010, my first year in pro baseball, and 2014, my first year in my second half of my pro career, I couldn't throw curveball that entire season each of those each of those first seasons back I just like couldn't I don't know what it was maybe it was a mental block so obviously you saw like Steven Strasburg jump back in of course I mean of course all being honest he's way better than I ever was so maybe just some guys can pick that stuff up better maybe it was a mental thing with me I don't really know but both times I really struggled to throw my breaking stuff and I include my changeup in that my changeup was easier to throw but it was still very difficult. So mostly I was a one-pitch pitcher, and if I didn't have such a good fastball, which got me through everything, then I, I pretty much would have been stuck. I probably would have been out of the game a lot sooner because obviously you can't make it very far in pro baseball with just one or two pitches. I mean, you have to be able to locate everything, and velocity is just one tiny little thing despite what everyone on the internet seems to think right now. How bad did the surgery hurt? So I got a question like this recently where a kid was kind of panicked, like, oh, I don't know if I want to get the surgery. You know, I'm, I'm really nervous about about the pain and maybe I just won't do it. I don't know. You know, and, and that's a that's a choice up to you. I didn't really have I think I was actually probably a little bit cold about it, but I mean look, you either want to do it or you don't. You're either afraid of pain or you're not. But the surgery didn't hurt. 
obviously they drill holes in my bones, which is it's fascinating to watch on YouTube. But and they suggested that I take the Vicodin on both surgeries. The nurse was like, no, just take it. I know you think you're tough, but just take it. It'll make you more relaxed. And when you're more relaxed, you'll heal better. I didn't take those stupid Vicodin. I took one Vicodin pill the first time, the first surgery, and I was on the toilet trying to make something happen and could not make anything happen. Felt super sick. So I felt like I needed to be in the bathroom, but nothing would happen there. It was horrible. And I'm not going to elaborate on that, but um, Vicodin tore my stomach up. So I took one dose of it. I was done. Didn't take any of it the second time. But beyond that, I just really wasn't in pain. I don't know how that makes sense because obviously, like I said, they drill holes in your bones and they stitch you up and all this crazy stuff. But there was just very little pain, at least for me. Um, obviously I'm, I'm sure that experience is different for most people, but a lot of guys I've also talked to, uh, kind of express the same sentiment where they, you know, just weren't in much pain. So, um, what did I do differently? So, like I said, I'm, I, uh, I'm an outlier for sure. The amount of guys who come back well from surgery number two or even surgery number one, the rates are not as good as people think they are. I came back very well from both of them. I threw harder both times. I pitched better than I ever had in my career, I pitched at higher levels after each. So when I graduated from college, I got Tommy John surgery. Well, I graduated from college while rehabbing my Tommy John surgery. So the next time I played was at the highest level I'd ever played at, which was pro baseball. So I had to make that leap while being, you know, basically just a fastball pitcher trying to like relearn how to pitch again. So I had to like do all that stuff on the fly, which is not easy. And then after surgery number two, I moved up to the Atlantic League, which is an extremely high level of play. And I had suddenly guys who'd played five, six years in the big leagues digging in the box against me. I had to figure out again how to relearn to pitch against guys that I'd never, you know, guys way better than I'd ever faced before. So some of the things that helped me besides just mental toughness was varied forearm exercises. So my first surgery I had beyond just the UCL tear, I had a forearm tear also show up on my MRI. And I had I had forearm pain throughout my first surgery. If I'd just be showering, just shampooing my hair, I'd have pain as my like fingers kind of pushed into my scalp because you know, I'm you know, I give myself a pretty good scalp massage when I massage when I shampoo. Anyway, but I had forearm pain the first time around and the second time around, you know, the the rehab is fine, you know, the typical rehab packet that you'll get that your therapist will do with you is pretty vanilla. You know, it's three days a week, whatever. But for me, beyond just like the forearm wrist curls and the forearm six-way exercises, which you can see on my YouTube channel, there's so much stuff that you can do to strengthen your fingers, your hands, all these different ways. So if you ever read up on climbing training, they talk about open hand strength, about finger strength, about pinch gripping strength, about crushing strength, all these different things for your forearms. Your forearms and fingers, they, they're so interesting you know they can grasp things and crush things and pinch things and you know you pronate soup now your hands have tremendous mobility and there's so many different little muscles uh interworking in your forearm so i tried to hit those in as many different ways as i could to stimulate growth in my forearm and strengthen my form and my fingers as much as i could because i think for, i think fingertip training is very underrated i think it's very underserved for all baseball players in general i mean where does the ball leave your hand right it leaves it on your fingertips so why would you not want strong fingertips and just doing wrist curls and all the standard kind of form exercises that you might already do they're mostly done with a crushing grip and they're mostly done with joint action at the wrist not so much at the fingers so when you take it a step further you start doing more pinch grips you start doing more kind of interesting farmer's walk variations or holds or maybe you do a little bit of uh really low effort climbing stuff like i like to boulder um, obviously bouldering is wildly climbing in general is wildly inappropriate until you're probably 
past the 14 month mark. However, there's lots of little rock climbing trainers that you can do that you can use lots of weird grips, just things to challenge yourself. So anytime I was doing rowing exercises, I try to challenge my, my finger strength, my forearm strength. Um, I bought lots of little different grippers. I have these things called IM tugs, which are from this company, Iron Mind. So they're called Iron Mind two finger utility grippers, IM tug. And they're just these little things that you squeeze in your hand, just like a regular, you know, form gripper, those big V shaped things that you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. I had a bunch of different uh, types of those different strength levels. So I could strengthen my individual fingers beyond my, just my forms as a whole, my hands as a whole. And I did a ton of uh, hand extension work too. So not just crushing, but as you open your hand, that your form extensors and your finger extensors, they, uh, which are all largely the same muscles, obviously, but I really made sure I crushed those. And even now, if you compare my left forearm to my right, there's a significant difference as you get close to my elbow, where just all the cutting into it has left me with some atrophy and some just weird shape, I guess. Maybe I'll put a, a photo of that up on my Instagram. But anyway, so I think that was one of the things that really helped me, where I strengthened my forearms and my fingers which again, they help reinforce and kind of bulletproof your elbow because your UCL is a passive structure. So if you're trying to support your UCL and take stress off it, besides having good mechanics, you know, according to the ASMI guidelines and all that stuff, your other line of defense is having strong forearms because strong forearms help close your elbow joint essentially. You know, they're pulling across the joint, your forearm muscles, they attach past your wrist and across your and over your elbow, your, your elbow joint. So that's why when you curl, when you do chin-ups, you're getting assistance from your forearms. It's really interesting. There's just tons going on in your forearm compartment. So anyway, I think being extremely versatile and strong and, and varied in your training with your hands and your forearms is, is crucial for a good recovery. Next question is, how did it feel when your elbow blew up? Um, did you feel a pop? So I didn't feel a pop either time. Mine was like a, a degradation over a period of a couple of months. So the first time I... Well, obviously, I'd had two partial elbow tears going into the year where I got where I finally blew it out. So there's clearly a lot of form scar tissue, some UCL scar tissue. And once your UCL has been partially torn and strained and damaged, there's always going to be scar tissue in there. And then that ligament's not going to stretch and move the way it's naturally designed to. So it's just going to be more likely to to be injured. So anyway, far as me feeling a pop, you know, I didn't. So my first one, I felt kind of what I described as like a good guitar strum. So I. By that point, 2008, I had the gamut of elbow pain. I pretty much felt it all, the different types. I don't know how you kind of explain that, but I kind of knew when I was hurt and when I wasn't, you know, what, what pain to really listen to. And that's something you learn as you get older. But I was out there on the mound and I was pitching against this guy, Tom Kohler, who's now, he's a starter with the Marlins. He's had a pretty good big league career. And so there were 15 scouts in the stands. It was a conference tournament. You know, he was their ace. I was our ace for UMBC. And it was a 4-3 game. I was losing. It was the sixth inning. There were two outs. So we were in Farmingdale, New York. And so, you know, it was dark at this point. It was maybe like 8.30 at night. The lights were on, you know, beyond the backdrop of the of the, the stands and all the scouts with their radar guns. It was just it was just blackness. It was just kind of forest. And so it was a neat setting. But with two outs in the sixth inning, I think I had a runner. I have all these details in different places. You know, they're written down in my book. They're written down in all these different places. But they got a runner on second or runner on first and second. And this right-hander was up and I threw him a curveball and I felt just like this vibration down my forearm as if someone had taken their hand and just strummed uh, like the guitar strings that were my forearm muscles. So it wasn't a pain. It was like this weird vroom. I'm like, weird. 
that wasn't something I had experienced before. And I just remember looking off into the blackness at that point. And, you know, these really tall trees in the distance that were such a dark green because they're almost out of sight. I said, well, uh, this is scary because I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm going to throw this next pitch. And I was terrified. I described that in kind of a flippant way, but I knew I was going to throw another pitch. There were a lot of, lot of, lot of scouts in the stands. I really wanted to get drafted. I thought I had a pretty good chance. I threw another pitch and did the same thing and it strummed. And so at this point I was like, okay, what's going on? So all I wanted to do, I had two outs, was get off that mound without all these guys realizing that something was going on. And this dickhead at the plate just kept fouling balls off. So I kept throwing pitches, and I started to not really have a good idea where the ball was going. It was just pitch, 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 foul, foul, foul. Then finally, he just bounces like a 19 hopper down the line, right between my third baseman and the line. Rolls in the corner, clears the bases for a double. At that point, I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. So I point at my elbow, coach comes out, trainer comes out, I walk off. That's the end of my college career. <laughs> Oddly enough, that guy who I referred to as a dickhead, actually a really nice guy, was my, became my teammate uh, three years later. No, from that point, it'd be four years later. So 2012, I played for Evansville, and they signed this guy out of New York, I think like a month or two into the season, out of Stony Brook. His name was Steve Marino. And uh, so I'm, you know, Steve's a good dude. He's a, he's a good, good third baseman. You know, kind of quiet, like we get along, like I respect him. And, you know, as one day as we're talking about Stony Brook and blah, 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 and I'm like, were you there in 2008? He's like, yeah, I think I was a sophomore or whatever. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like I had before in in previous years, you know, if you don't know, this is also a weird coincidence for me. I uh, I threw my last pitch. That that scene I just described was May 22nd, 2008. My first start in pro baseball was May 22nd, 2012. So four day, four years to the exact day, I went down and I made my comeback, which is which is pretty cool. So I don't really celebrate Cinco de Mayo. I celebrate uh. Was that once, doce, dos? I don't know. My Spanish is, is brutal. But anyway, I started looking through the box score, and that jerk, that guy who foul, 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 and then snuck one down the line, it was Steve Marino. <laughs> so I uh, I was home before I figured that out that season because that was the year I blew out my elbow again. And I texted Steve, and I was like, dude, that was you. That was you. You, <laughs> you expletive. So anyway, it's just weird how the baseball community works. It's always smaller than uh, than you realize. But second time around, I had same thing, like slowly creeping in pain for a couple months. I got a cortisone shot because Evansville wanted me to be their opening day starter, and I was I'd be damned if I wouldn't make that start. So I got a cortisone shot a couple days before the season. Didn't let the cortisone sh- sit as long as it was supposed to. I don't know why they let me do that, but I think I got the shot, and I pitched like three days later. Usually they want a lot more time to let it all calm down. Uh, I mean, that did wonders. Cortisone shots are incredible. And then four or five weeks later, when the shot wore off, uh, I was in the Southern Illinois Miners visitor bullpen throwing, and it was uh, hurting a pretty good amount, like uh, six or seven out of ten, which, again, I I think my pain tolerance is pretty high. So six or seven for me is, is getting up there. And uh, I was just letting it eat in the pen, and I knew there was a Kansas City Royal scout in the stands that day. He signed a different guy. He signed this guy, Matt Fields, who uh, I think made it to the big leagues, I think, with the Royals. If not, he got pretty close. He was a good player. And uh, I was leading the league in ERA at that point, and I was going to make that start. So 
I was hurting in the bullpen. My pitching coach, Brooks Carey, who could read me pretty well, so we were walking off with my towel over my shoulder. He was like, uh, you're hurting, aren't you, Blue? I'm like, yep. He's like, well, if I need to come get you, just let me know. I said, all right. So a couple of... I think it was the second inning. I had no idea where the ball was going. It was like daggers into my elbow, just right deep into that kind of crease right where your your um uh your nerve is. So right in that little crease right there, that, that groove. And so I started choosing pitches based on which ones hurt less. And that didn't go great. I gave a solo home run, which I was irritated about because that put my ERA over one. I was at like 0.9 or something, and that put me over. And after that, I faked a blister injury to try to get off the mound, which I eventually did. Then again, I I thought I tricked people, but apparently I didn't because I had a buddy on that team who... Well, we later became friends, and I asked him about that. I'm like, hey, did I trick you guys? you guys think I had a blister issue? He's like, nah, dude. We all knew your elbow was destroyed. <laughs> like, we're not idiots. I'm like, oh, okay. But anyway, so Dave, if you're listening, I tried to fool you. I failed. Oh, well. Um, so for me, I never had a pop. It was always just a slow onset, just this insidious onset, and that's kind of how it went for me. But obviously, I, I do know guys who they just throw one pitch, and then they just drop, and there's incredible pain. I've seen it. So, you know, it's just it depends on the person, I guess. So it's not going to give you any comfort. So if you do have current elbow pain listening to this, you need to get it checked out. Like you don't know, you know, just because you're not, just because you're able to throw a ball hard, which I could still do when I was injured. because I was sitting around 90 both those times uh, when I actually left the game with that injury. You know, it's just hard to tell. So you want to go see a doctor, get an MRI, take care of it. Did I have pain during my early throwing stage of my recovery? So I didn't have a ton. I, as I look back through... I, I took notes sometimes. Obviously, my second surgery, I chronicled it on YouTube. It's called the Tommy John Chronicles. Just I took a video every week to kind of talk about how I was feeling. They're super boring. Looking back on it, I wish I had put some color in there. Sometimes I think I fancy myself a, a funny, funny guy, but they're super boring. But if you're going through the surgery, they're still, uh, I think, good good help for keeping you on track and relaying what I was going through at the time. But, you know, I had consistently some aching, some feeling of looseness after I'd throw. I didn't have a ton of pain when I was actually throwing, but afterwards, you know, it would just feel the way you feel after you just like used a new ligament. I, I don't know. I mean, like, and that was the thing that I get a lot of the same email, which is, did your elbow hurt? Did it feel like this? Did you get this? And I'm like, dude, they drilled holes in your arm. Do you not expect it to hurt a little bit? You do, right? You know? So anyway, I, uh, I had some achiness, some pain, some feeling of looseness. That was all pretty consistent, but our trainers were clear. They're like, look, you got to wait 24 hours before you start reading into any of this stuff. So don't freak out when your elbow is hurting a little bit during throwing. Like, again, that's normal. So give it some time. 24 hours later, see how it feels. And most of the time, 24 hours later, it felt pretty decent. You know, it recovered. You know, it, it didn't feel worse. And that's the kind of, that's the thing. Like, you're stressing it. You have to put stress on it so that it it grows tougher. It's the said principle, you know, specific ad- adaptations to impose demands. You have to throw with it if you want it to be durable enough to throw on. So every time you do that, you're stressing it. And then with the stress and then with recovery, with good nutrition and sleep and rest, it gets, you know, it's, it starts to thicken up and become ligamentized and all that good stuff. Did I get shoulder soreness? So not that much. Uh, obviously, it depends on your regimen. Like my shoulder regimen was, I think, pretty impeccable and very rigorous i tried to kill it because that was the only thing i could control was like my workout so i killed my shoulder stuff i don't want to have any problems i'd heard rumors of guys coming back from tommy john and then blowing out their labrum because they didn't take care of their shoulder well enough i don't want any part of that so 
I really killed my shoulder exercises. I did tons of endurance work. I did tons of stability work. I just did, again, a very wide range, very varied workout. So I think I, I bulletproofed my shoulder pretty well. And then, uh, so I never had like significant shoulder soreness during my throwing program at any point of either surgery. But again, that's not abnormal if, if that happens. And really just needs the same attention as anything else. So if you're throwing and you're not recovering from surgery. If your shoulder's bothering you, you probably need to reevaluate your mechanics or what you're doing, some of your mobility markers, some of that kind of stuff. Just figure it out. When I had pain, how did I get past it? So again, you have to listen to your arm. I mean, that's the biggest thing. If you feel like you need to back off, then back off. If you feel like, hey, this is just kind of normal, you know, arm getting stronger, elbow getting stronger, then you can kind of keep going. And you can kind of keep going until it tells you, hey, I need a rest. I need to back off. And I in my first surgery, I definitely had a, a period, I think I had it once or twice where I just was accumulating fatigue and pain where I had to just like give it a break, like give it an extra week and, and let it calm down. Ditto for the second time. You, again, you just got to listen to your arm, just like any other part of your body, you know, and if say there were no guidelines, say you had no rehab program, you're just like throwing the wilderness to like rehab your elbow, you know, what would you do? You would just take it kind of slow, you'd take it in, you know, regular increments, you know, you wouldn't you'd probably throw like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, if you had some sort of weird nature forest calendar, you know, you'd, you'd slowly up your dosage, right? If your arm hurt a lot, maybe you wouldn't throw a lot, right? You'd just kind of wait till it felt a little bit better. All those things are common sense. And I think when you remember that someone made this program, right? Commonly used Tommy John recovery program, the interval throwing program that was made by like a team of doctors and pitching coaches and, and physical therapists. They all sat down and thought about how tissues healed, about what intervals would be, you know, ideal for promoting, you know, improved strength and recovery. And they just made this right. There wasn't some like manual for it. They made it and then they improved it over time. But they started with common sense, things that they knew. And even if you didn't have someone guiding you, because I know a lot of a lot of players who will go through surgery won't have good guidance. You know, if you're in a small town without a PT who's done this before or without a PT who's worked with lots of baseball players, you're a little bit on your own and you're dis- definitely disadvantaged. So you just have to, to realize that at the very least, use common sense. Think about what a good progression, a sensible progression would be. So when you don't have, if you don't have guidance, just use your brain, right? Okay, next question. What is it like wearing the arm brace? And what limitations did you have? Showering is super annoying. So you can't get water in your incision for until it's closed, obviously. So for like weeks one through three, I think, I was putting like a bag over my arm and taping it shut. So then I could shower and I really couldn't use my arm very well. So it's just kind of like that stupid one-hand shower. Fun, gross story. My second surgery, my, my wound was healed for a while. And then there was this little spot, like because... I can still see the little pinholes where they dug the suture passer in, the little stitch stitcher. And one of those little like dots, just like a little eyelet scars, it just like was being kind of scabby. And my uh, my stitch, um, not my stitch, but my scar had been healed for a little while. So it was like, why is this like unhealing itself? And I was like picking at it. And I was at a baseball game watching one of the kids I worked with. And I'm picking at it. And I'm picking at it. And then I start to like see this little white thing. And I start to just gently tug on it. And it was... I pull it out like a half an inch and it's a white with a little red this is a suture so this is this white thread with like little red accents in it you know like they have to fancy up the suture thread 
you know, if they'd asked me, I would have probably got like, I don't know, black and blue. I don't know. That would have been cooler than what red and white. But anyway, so I kept pulling on this thing and it was disgusting. It was like this worm coming out of my arm. It was like two, two and a half inches long, this big suture. This I was like, did I just unravel my surgery? So I, I emailed uh, my, my PT and my doc and they're like, nah, like those just come out sometimes, you know, after they, some of the sutures dissolve, some of them don't. But that was, it was pretty gross. I remember doing that in front of my friend. They're like, ew, get that, out of, get that out of here. Speaking of which, I can still feel all my other sutures in there. So if you run your hand right along the inside of my elbow, my forearm muscle, it's just like kind of like that candy dots, like that paper where it's like little candy, which is like the, the stupidest, crappiest candy of all time. I don't know why people eat that, but I remember getting them at like, I don't know, these weird candy shops when I was a kid. And even then I thought they were stupid, but it feels like that. There's like those little pinheads sticking out of my arm where there's like eight of them in a nice little row where I guess those sutures didn't dissolve, but most of the sutures dissolve and I didn't unravel my, my, my fix right then. So that was good. But you know, the brace is not the end of the world. You just, you get used to it. Mine was just like fire engine red. And I guess it was kind of handsome, but I don't know. I mean, you look like a transformer. Obviously, like labels you out in public, people look at you weird. I have this story where I'm not for sure I'm going to go into it today, but I was, when I just got in surgery for the second time, I had that red brace and I was about due to head back home. So when I was with Evansville, it was covered under workers' comp. So once I got home from Cincinnati, I was staying with the team for a couple of weeks just to do my first, my early rehab where you need a little more assistance than you do about a month later. And after that phase started to wind down, I asked if I could go on a road trip, like one last road trip with the guys. So they let me. And one of my good friends on the team, he uh, he had a birthday on that trip. And they wanted to go out to one of the bars in Southern Illinois. And I was like, uh. And this was me making a transition in my life where I wanted to make sure I didn't like waste moments, right? So I was starting to find a better balance, starting to go out a little bit more, not because I love drinking or partying because I don't, like I still don't drink very much. I'm just not really into it. But I wanted to just like be with friends and just be a little more social. That's one of the things that I, I kind of sacrificed in college. And I, I regret it as I look back. I didn't have a good balance between being a teammate and a friend and a dedicated athlete, right? I just kind of kept my head down, kept to myself. And I don't know that I would have made it anywhere in baseball if I hadn't done that. But at the same time, some of my teammates had just lifelong bonds with each other. And I didn't, I didn't have that experience because I was too consumed with being better at baseball. Every waking moment was me trying to be better, doing something, running or doing mechanics drills or doing arm care at home on a Friday night or whatever it was. But as I got older, I started to try to find a strike a better balance, not shirk my responsibilities, but just again, find a balance, be a teammate and enjoy the fact that I had made it somewhere. Right. So I went, I begrudgingly went out to the club with them and I said, look, I'm not going to be drinking. I'm just going to have water and you guys just got to make sure. And I, I didn't think this even needed to be said. But I was like, if something happens, I can't be the one to intervene. Like you guys need to protect me. Like we are, we all, we all understand that. Right. Cause I figured at some point along this drive, this like 30 minute taxi ride, someone would have told me, Oh, Hey blue. Like, you know, we we'll be around like we'll keep an eye on you like you know if anything happens like we'll kind of be your bodyguards i fear like someone would say that but no one did and it kind of concerned me because i felt like i would say that to someone like i just kind of let them know like hey don't worry you know i got your back so lo and behold the birthday boy gets a drink poured on his head by this girl who accused him of stealing her drink which he didn't and again this is one of the perils of just going to bars like you can just find yourself in a fight that you have no desire to be in that you don't deserve to be in just sometimes trouble finds you and that's again another reason just to lay low and again avoid the partying lifestyle but lo and behold of like the five or six guys that we were with i was next to the birthday boy as he became 
furious to the point of almost wanting to punch this girl in the face, which he, he didn't, and he never would hit a girl, I don't think, but he was as mad as I'd ever seen him. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to come back. I'm going to go get my boyfriend. I'm going to come back. I'm going to beat all you guys up. Great. This is the exact situation I didn't want. This is perfect. We're here in this trashy outdoor bar in southern Illinois, and there's a bunch of guys that are going to come back over here real soon, and, you know, I'm here in an arm brace like a cripple. And speaking of cripples, I had gone up to a girl as we entered the bar, because even though I was in a brace, I was still, you know, super handsome, and I was like, hey, how are you, blah, 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 and she looks at me, and she goes, oh, you're handicapped. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it was a great night all around, you know, just dropping my self-esteem down a couple pegs and almost getting in brawls. So what we found out a couple minutes later was that she was bluffing. She came back with another horrible friend of hers who was a, you know, just another irritating girl. But so no brawl ensued, but she came back and, you know, started cursing at us and blah, blah, blah. And I had to be the one to get between my friend and, and these two horrible women. And my other buddies were nowhere else to be found so but you know for this brief moment in time i had this big adrenaline rush thinking like what was even going to happen like was i going to keep my friend off of these other guys were they going to try to fight you know the poor handicapped kid with the, with the red brace like i didn't know but so i guess i would say that, that was a limitation of the arm brace that i wasn't able to just throw haymakers to all, to all these people in the bar but really the brace wasn't that big a deal you know it's like a month or six week period that you have it you kind of like having it because it takes some of the worry off you of like falling on it or some unforeseen thing you just feel a little bit safe which is a good thing you know but and i didn't have a brace my first surgery my first doctor dr morgan he didn't believe in the brace and i was just had i was just loosey-goosey i could do whatever i wanted and uh that that did worry me it worried me from day one i remember on the stretcher or gurney or whatever they call it coming to and he's like hey surgery went great blah blah stronger than the day you're born i'm like wait wait, where's my brace? Oh, you don't have one. You just got a cast for two days and then they take that off and you're good. I'm like, can I sleep with no brace? <laughs> and he's like, oh no, you're good. You're fine. You'll be fine. I'm like, that does not help me at all. So I liked having more structure in my second surgery because uh, the first guy was just like, here, I did the surgery. You're good. Just basically run out into the forest. It'll heal itself. And that was a little nerve wracking. Moving on. Besides not throwing through pain, um, and adhering to pitch count limits, what's the best way to prevent arm pain in youth pitchers? This is a not off topic, obviously, but a couple of things. Pitch count limits are important, and the best minds in the industry still don't know if that's really helping. Now, it definitely helps to get kids from not going 120 pitches on Monday, 120 more pitches on Thursday, and then come in to close the game on Saturday, because that still happens. There's a high school in the state of Illinois that I just found out about. They had two kids pitch every game for their high school season for the last like 20 years, two kids, two kids, this coach would pitch two kids. That's crazy. That's like 150 pitches every game, twice, three times a week for some of these guys. It's, it's, it's insane. That stuff still happens. It's terrifying. So pitch counts will help a lot as far as that stuff. Cause if you're not going over a hundred and you have, and you get over your four days rest to the next one, that's at least within the acceptable use, you know, the acceptable practices that the doctors think our arms are capable of. Right. And obviously not throwing through pain is crucial because you don't want to make a small problem into a big problem. And that definitely happens way more than people think. Kids hide their pain. Again, it was if you listen to the recent Twinsies podcast that my partner Lucas Cook and I do, I talked about how I read this book, What Every Body Is Saying by Joe Navarro. It's all about body language. And one of the reasons I read that book is because I wanted to be able to read kids better being a coach now. So I don't have to, I'm not going to ask them, how do you feel? But I might say, hey, your shoulder's bothering you, isn't it? 
and I'm going to look at his reaction. And if I see the sort of a Olympic system, like natural, like kind of slumps where he's like agreeing with me with his body language, I'm like, all right, you're done. Because they're really the coaches, the coach's job, your job is not to ask them how they feel. I've lied to so many coaches throughout my career saying, oh yeah, I feel good. I feel good. I feel good. I, I jogged out to the mound numerous times. I think I counted six of them where I was making peace with my career in the bullpen. That's not a fun job to have, but I made those choices. And I, two of them, I, I did blow up my elbow that night and four others I didn't, but those were, t- those were terrifying moments going out there, just laying it all on the line. And I constantly lied to coaches about how my arm felt because if I wasn't going to be injured, it wasn't their business, right? If I'm not damaged, if I can pitch, then get out of here. It's not your, it doesn't matter how I feel. I'm, you know, especially as a pro, I'm in control of my body. So get away from me, but kids are not. So the coaches, it's your job to take them out of the game. It's not your job to ask them if they can give you one more because they will always say yes. And if they don't say yes, there's kind of a problem there too. And it's a weird catch 22. I don't want the kind of kid on my team who will say, coach, I'm done. Can you take me out? I don't want that kid on my team, but I don't want the kid who's going to ruin himself because I care about that kid. So they have to have the bulldog mentality that I want to keep pitching coach. I'm tough. I don't care about pain. They need to have that mentality, but we need to find a way to take that out of their hands, take that decision away from them right? So if they are in pain, we need to cut them, just cut their workload down. If they're reaching their pitch limit, it doesn't matter if they want to go back out, they're done. So coaches, we need to stop asking how kids feel. You need to stop asking if they can give you one more. We need to stop asking for their input in any way. They get no input. You decide when they're done, you take them out of the game. If you have any inkling that their arm's bothering them, you see them, and kids will tell you, you see them start to wiggle their shoulder around, move their elbow around. I was super good at freezing, and that's the thing too, the freeze response. When my elbow was hurt, I was conscious about not moving it, not shaking it out, not drawing any any attention to it. And in that, that sort of that, that freeze response of me trying to trick people is also a response, right? So if you see a kid who's like, why is he like hanging his arm like that? Like, why is he like not looking natural right now it might be because he's got arm pain doesn't want anyone to know about it so again you make the decision for your pitchers beyond that it's strength and conditioning for young kids you can't expect them to go through the incredibly tedious arm care routines that i went through the for the last 13 years of my career from age 18 to 31 i was doing that three three to five times a week and it was horrible i hated it every single time and it became an absolute chore and a bitter pill that i would swallow but Obviously, I knew that it was necessary, and I saw the results from it. However, you just legitimately can't ask that many 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds to put in three or four days a week of 20 to 30 minutes of arm strengthening stuff, which is what's required, unfortunately, to really bulletproof your shoulder and your elbow and to have a a decent dent in the injury rate. So you got to understand that kids are going to be kids, but strength conditioning in general, a good program is arm care. When they get a good mix and so they get two or three hours a, wor- a week of workouts, which is what most of our kids get at Warbird Academy, they're getting pushing and pulling. So their shoulder blades are getting stronger. Their rotator cuffs getting stronger. Their hips are getting stronger. Core is getting stronger. Their, their kinetic chain now works better, right? They get less fatigue, so their mechanics don't change as much as they get tired in the game. Strength and conditioning is arm care. So we need to remember that, especially for the younger populations. We have so many kids who are 12, 13, 14 who love strength training, but they don't love the boring arm care stuff. We force them to do a little bit of it, but we also understand that they're still kids and you don't want to ruin the game and make it a job for them, right? And most of these kids aren't injured either, right? So even if they do have some pain, then that's when they hopefully get the ignition, they get some motivation to do more stuff. It's like, hey, dude, your elbow keeps hurting. I've told you before, 
that this might be the the route we have to go that you have to do two or three days a week of forearm exercises and shoulder exercises at home. So it's up to you. Do you want to keep having arm pain or do you want to finally have to be an adult? You know, we'd rather you not have to do all that extra stuff because we know it sucks, but that's life. And that's when it becomes their decision. Most of these kids won't make the decision to put in the amount of extra work that's necessary until they're hurt, right? And I was hurt most of my career. So I got the motivation pretty early. But in general, not throwing through pain is great. Pitch count limits are great. Making the decision for the pitcher is necessary. Also reducing kids who pitch and catch. So if if you have a kid who throws four or five innings, you throw them right back out behind the plate or you throw them back out at shortstop, you know, where it's a throwing intensive position. I don't think that's ideal. I think we need to have larger roster sizes so the kids can sit more. You know, kids need to know, hey, if you're going to be a starting pitcher for us, you're going to sit the rest of that game and maybe the next game because it's, it's good for your arm. And that's going to get some other kids to play while you're sitting down because sitting is a part of the game. We all need to understand that. I know parents want rosters of 10 kids, but look, if you want to play pro baseball someday or college baseball, you're going to have to deal with sitting on the bench. If you play Division One baseball, you're going to sit for one to two years. You want to play pro baseball? I mean, there might be a guy ahead of you and you might play 40 games out of 140. You never know. So and if you're a reliever, like I was my last couple of years, I get to pitch for four minutes a game. And if I do my job, I pitch less. And if I don't do my job, I pitch more. So I want to pitch as little as possible. I want to go out there and have three quick at-bats, a minute and a half each, and be back in the dugout for anyone knows my name. Roster size, I think, is important. But a good strength and conditioning program that has pushing, pulling, core exercises, hip, lateral hip, quad, all those things. Teach them how to move, strengthen their whole body, and obviously tons of emphasis on good mechanics before all this weighted ball stuff and all this uh, high intensity throwing mechanics need to be the first thing so those are the 10 questions that i want to cover today and there's no reason i can't do this again later if i get more you know if i get some q a from from listeners but a couple other things that i kind of want to convey after surgery number one at 11 months i thought i retore my elbow so i was in an adult league game and it was pretty much close to fully recovered i was sitting 90 91 i had a couple 92s and it was a game where, again, I didn't care, but it was a, it was like a big a big game for this adult league team that I was playing for. They're their big rival, two pretty good teams for you know for a men's league. Maybe like the second inning, first or second inning, one of their better hitters, a guy who was drafted who didn't end up signing, but he was like a really good college player and got drafted. I make like a decent fastball low and away. He drives into the gap opposite field, and as he's trotting into second base, he goes, "Yeah, I'll hit that 86 mile per hour college stuff all day." And I just looked at him. And I was so angry. I just went through a year of rehab and you are going to show me up and talk smack about me where I can hear you on the field in a stupid men's league game that no one cares about. I was pissed. So when he came back up the next time I told my catcher I was going to hit him. So I threw the first pitch up and in. uh, And for those listening, you don't try to hit people in the head. That's not a good thing to do. However, I was trying to do that. Live and learn. I do not try to do that anymore. I haven't thrown it really haven't thrown that many hitters in my career, but I learned a little bit later on that don't mess with a guy's life, you know, take him in the kneecap, hit him in the back, hit him in the elbow, whatever, but don't, don't throw for guys' heads. Anyway, uh, I did. So I threw up and in and it was kind of close, but not enough to get the message. So the next one went behind his head. That one, that one was pretty good. That one got, he got the hint and he drops the bat at the plate he stares at me and he goes, man, why are you throwing? He yells at me and I start pacing in towards him and we exchange a significant amount of F words and expletives and all that stuff. And I 
screamed at him that it was because he was running his mouth and as he was going into second base, blah, blah, blah. And he got kind of taken aback by it. He got wide eyes. So I, I knew I won. I was mad. Anyway, as I threw that pitch behind his head, I could feel my elbow kind of gap. I could feel the bones kind of spread apart, which is a gross feeling that you get when you have a torn elbow. And had I not gotten ejected uh, from that, we didn't actually end up fighting. Our catcher held the guy back, even though he got kind of scared when I started running towards him. Then he, like, reset his angry guy switch and, like, tried to, like, kick and swing at me. But anyway, it got broken up before anything happened. But I got ejected, and as I was walking back to my car, my elbow was not in good shape. And it started to swell up, and it hurt. And I just was like, I definitely felt that thing gap. And I called my doctor the next day, and it was painful. It was swollen still. And I went in for an evaluation. He just did this real half-assed evaluation. He's just like, eh, oh, no, it's fine. It's probably just tendonitis. And I was like, really? Because I don't think that's what it is. But okay, you're the doctor. And I took some anti-inflammatories for six weeks and didn't throw for six weeks. And that was that. The really sad news came a week later when one of my good friends, my coach, called me. And he said, hey, one of my friend, one of my buddies from Indie Ball is the coach of the Joliet Jackhammers. And they're doing terrible, and they could use some bullpen help. And I told him, I got a guy. Are you ready? <laughs> I, was so, I was so pissed. I was like, no. I kind of messed up my elbow, thrown at a guy's head. And that ended my potential to catch on in pro baseball that year in 2009. But as I recovered that winter from that little hiccup, whatever it was, I just had awful like bicep, tricep pain for the rest of that winter. And for the entire 2010 season, my first, my rookie season, where I could just like barely lift my arm after throwing like a full bullpen or a game, I had to be like fully medicated. I took 12 ibuprofen before every game that whole rookie season. I mean, to make it through 100 games like that is tough. Obviously, like I was in chronic, chronic pain with my my bicep area. I don't know what that was. It was just this crazy deadness. It was like if someone took a hammer and just like crushed you right between your bicep and your tricep over and over and over. And then every day you still felt like you had a bruise and then someone hits you with a hammer again in that same spot. So that was like a weird complication from surgery that I don't know what the deal was. I had that in high school too. I think it had something to do with my elbow and my mechanics. And I suspect that it was bicep tendonitis to be honest with you. But I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what that was, but it all started with me throwing behind that guy because uh, I didn't have that problem prior to that moment. And then that resolved itself like two years later, and I didn't have that my last my last three years, which was nice. So I don't know. That's kind of my little my little bonus story. But you know, other side notes. You know, I threw a rate I threw to a radar gun. I didn't go wide distance on my second surgery, which I felt was important that I could more accurately track my effort levels. So obviously, as you go from like forty five feet to sixty five feet to seventy five to seventy five feet to ninety feet, those are a little bit more vague effort goals. So I tried to use a radar gun. We radar gunned uh, what a typical throw from 60 feet was. And it was something like maybe 57 to 62. I can't remember exactly, but I followed all those, those guidelines, especially since I was going to be in a winter environment all winter. So I was going to be indoors finishing most of my rehab. I had to know what was 90 feet when I'm only able to throw 60 feet, you know, inside of a batting cage tunnel. So that was how I went about that. And that was something that Stan Conti mentioned in his talk at the ASMI last year. Uh, how radar gun is by far the best way to track velocity as you go to make sure you take it in small doses and you don't jump too far and you don't take too big of a step. So that was something I felt was very important to my recovery. I think it helped my second recovery, helped me get back on the field. But, you know, beyond that, the whole Tommy John surgery thing is pretty crazy. You know, I 
I consider myself lucky that I got as many years out of my body as I did. I don't have I don't have animosity <laughs> towards my elbow. Really, I think it it did everything it could for me, and it did more than I asked for it. And I asked I asked for a lot. And you know, as I look back on it, obviously we know more I think about mechanics today than we ever did. Well, I know for a fact a lot of people on the internet, which made it harder, pointed fingers at me based on some of my writings about mechanics. They're like, hey. You know, Dan Blue doesn't think the inverted W is a thing. He thinks that's that's not causing arm injuries, but he's had Tommy John. That's so awesome. It's so ironic and awesome that he's had Tommy John, but he doesn't th- believe in the inverted W. You know, research studies have recently disproved the injury, the correlation link between inverted W and injury rates. There's as many pitchers with inverted W injuries, and there's equal parts of pitchers who do not have the inverted W who are injured. So I realize I just said that weird, but that's not a you know a strong correlation between injury. There are a lot of mechanical markers where they say it puts more stress on your shoulder. You know, a late forearm at landing is one of them, which is kind of typified by the inverted W, but it's not necessitated by it. There are a lot of things. I don't know that I would have done anything different as I gone as I went back. I always worked, I think, as hard as I could to prevent my injuries, and it's hard to go back and say though I wish I had done this thing that I wouldn't have possibly known at this point in my career so I don't know I think I I did my best to ward it off and I think there's more resources than ever for people now I think there's also more pitfalls than ever because as more people get entrenched with the weighted ball methodology and they they enjoy and they see the benefit of weighted balls they want to jump back into them after their surgery and there's no set parameters as when that's when that's healthy or when that's safe I think guys just have to kind of go about it in a sensible way if they want to reintroduce that but it's obviously a new stress and could be a I don't, we don't really know what weighted balls are doing yet there's still a lot of new research that's coming out that's being conducted peer-reviewed research hopefully not just this stuff that random baseball academy around the country are conducting on their own because that's also dangerous but you know there's a lot of new things people love weightlifting people love deadlifting bench press seems to be making a resurgence and weighted balls are very popular these days so all these new things are just new confusing stimuli that could be good or they could be bad we don't really know right weighted balls might be a a benefit to the recovering pitcher we don't know but how to use them properly how to integrate them there the verdict is still out right so we have to just be careful with all the new resources and new tools that are available to us you know not demonize anything but just make sure we're cautious about it so that's it for the tommy john episode hopefully i've covered a lot of your questions shared a few stories you know it's a the hardship from this whole ordeal everything i've been through with my injuries is you know and i'm not alone i know a lot of teammates who had more surgeries than i who've had hard roads and you know it's always worth it coming back it's always worth putting in the effort you learn how to find solutions to problems how to tough out the hard times you build that that shell that you know that that toughness that's that's necessary in all aspects of life so you know if if you are faced with an injury you are faced with some pain make sure you make sensible decisions about it and and don't be afraid you know you've got your whole life to go back to nine to five job to to be a doctor to be a lawyer to be whatever so if you you are faced with a decision give it your best and remember that your baseball career is finite any you know, sports of any athlete, your career is finite. So if you have the chance and a doctor can save your career, or at least give you a chance, you know, roll the dice, do your best, work hard and see if uh, you can get back on the field. So last thing, if you have enjoyed my podcast, Dear Baseball Gods, please, it'll help me leave a review on iTunes. Obviously, you know, when I go out and I'm, I'm looking for places to eat and I'm checking out Yelp, you know, I'm much more inclined to uh, to stop into a restaurant that's got got shining reviews, and so I'd appreciate if I if I've, I've made an impact on you. You know, leave me a review so that more people 
feel compelled to, to tune in and, and hopefully get some out of this broadcast. Thank you. We'll see you next week.